fill-ins that I've been doing. And uh, a couple people have asked, why is it the kids fill-in? Can I have one? Um, so I'm declaring this Sunday, No Shame Sunday. Um, you found a few of those across the seats. Uh, go ahead and grab it. It's not the kids fill-in anymore. It's just the sermon notes. Um, so now, I mean, if you're getting a little taller, you may have a harder time getting chocolate off me afterwards. Maybe not. Um, but uh, yeah, feel free. If that's helpful to you, um, grab it, use it. Maybe even as you're taking your own notes, it's helpful to have the, uh, the main points uh, out there. Um, but uh, you know, two, three weeks from now, everyone will forget that it ever was just for kids and you don't have to worry about it. Um, so I hope that's a help for you. Um, one of my least favorite things in everyday life uh, is that automated voice that comes up with those dreaded words, I'm sorry, we're currently expecting a higher than expected, or currently uh, experiencing a higher than expected volume of calls, right? You know the one. Uh, what am I in for? What is happening now? First of all, um, if you are consistently experiencing a higher than expected volume of calls for a prolonged period of time, change your expectations, right? That's the first problem. Uh, the next problem is that music. Like, do they go looking for mind-numbing music? But the worst of it, of course, is the wait. Am I going to be two minutes? Am I going to be two hours? What are we in for? And of course, every now and then the music stops and you hear the click and every time you think, yes, this is it, we made it, I'm, I'm through. And it's just the voice coming back to remind you that you're still on hold as if maybe you had forgotten. Uh, in our fast food microwave Netflix world, uh, we hate to wait. We hate it. And, and that's exactly where we left poor Habakkuk last week. He is on hold with the Lord, waiting, waiting for God to answer and uh, he asked God, first, why, why is Israel, why is your chosen people so wicked and, and corrupt? And, and why haven't you done anything? And God answered him, saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm about to do something, but you're not going to like it. I'm about to bring the far more evil Babylonians to come in. And, and, and they will be my tool for disciplining Israel. To which Habakkuk responded, God, that's not fair. You can't, you can't do that. You, you're, you're holy and good. You can't work through that, that wickedness. So Habakkuk is wrestling with the Lord with these hard questions, trying to come to terms with the fact that, that God is, is sovereign over evil and, and he is over this whole thing. Even the wickedness of the Babylonians doesn't escape his reign, and yet he's wrestling in faith, knowing, holding to the truth that God is good and that he is good in all of his ways. And even though Habakkuk can't see it right now, it doesn't make sense to him. He's, he's holding on to those two things. Chapter 2, verse 1 is where we left off. Habakkuk saying to the Lord, I've asked my question, now I'll wait. Going up into the tower where I have perspective and I'm, and I'm waiting, looking out to the horizon for you to answer. And uh, this morning, um, we're going to uh, see the Lord's second answer to Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk chapter 2. So um, why don't you turn with me there in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, there hopefully was one uh, strewn amongst the chairs near you, uh, or you have ever ready, uh, esv.org is a good place. Um, but we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. I, I bring nothing of value. Um, 
I, I come like you under God's word, um, seeking God's wisdom, uh, not my own. And, and so um, hopefully you've, uh, you've gotten familiar with where to find this little book. If it's still a little tricky for you, uh, it's right near the end of the Old Testament. So you can open up to like Matthew, Mark, Luke and go backwards and uh, you'll find it there. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Um, and uh, this week we're in a, a smaller section, chapter 2, verse 2, um, through to verse 5. And uh, it's rather comical. Um, Habakkuk's first complaint is the evil in Israel. And, and the Lord's answer was, oh, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I, I'm bringing more evil. And then Habakkuk questions God's use of, of Babylon. And, uh, and he says, I'll wait for the answer. And the Lord says, oh, you're going to wait. You, you, you're going to wait more than you think you are. Um, and, and he's um, teaching him. And, and as, as much as that must have been frustrating for Habakkuk to hear, uh, I think it's helpful for us. Uh, I think we're pretty accustomed to saying things like, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And then I would ask, do we have any idea what that means? What are you actually doing? Um, and I've heard from a few of you this week who are, who are feeling what Habakkuk is feeling. You're, you're here. This is, this is hidden home for you. Um, you have these things in your life. I think um, that's the reality of this world that, that we live in. You're either in the middle of suffering uh, or you just came out of a time of suffering or you're about to go in. Th- those are really the only three options. Um, that's the world that we live in. And, and so Habakkuk is, is hearing from God um, this message. Here's how to wait. Here's, here's what it's about. Um, and, and that's where we're going to spend our time today, how to wait well. Let me read this passage for us, and, uh, and then we'll get into it. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Would you pray with me as we look into God's word this morning? Father, help us. Lord, you know our weakness. You know how small uh, our perspective can often be and how we are burdened uh, by suffering, by trials, and brought down. God, we so identify with that first cry of Habakkuk, how long, O Lord, how long will this carry on? Do you not see the evil and the suffering? Will you not act? God, I pray this morning you would help us learn to wait well. Lord, help us learn um, to see you more clearly, to rest in you, to trust you. God, that you might be honored um, in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 2, the Lord answers Habakkuk, and and he tells them, uh, he tells Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision. Write it down. Write it clearly. Make it plain. Some of you have gotten notes from me and you're like, I wish you'd have told John that. Um, write it clearly. Uh, don't be messy. And then there's this strange phrase, so that he may run who reads it. 
what does that mean? Um, it's not that it should scare people and they would run away. Uh, I, I think the idea here is that running is connected with the idea of a messenger. Um, messengers ran, and fast runners were messengers. And, and so I think the idea is that, that, that someone can read it and they can run, they can take this message uh, and spread it, take it out. Um, the message needs to get out. Um, I think in your fill-ins I wrote verse 1. It's the first verse of our passage, but it's verse 2. Um, this vision is God's word for everyone. It's for everyone. It needs to go. It needs to be spread. And then verse 3, the Lord begins to kind of address this idea of waiting. Before he even gives Habakkuk the vision, um, he prepares him for what to do with it. And, and what he's going to need to do is wait. And the first thing uh, we see the Lord telling Habakkuk is wait with patient humility. Wait with patient humility. It's scattered throughout verse 3 here. These statements like, uh, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. And then the bottom of verse 3, it will surely come. It will not delay. He's saying be patient. And I think a lot of times we approach patience as something that you kind of have to just muscle through. Um, we know that we're not patient. We don't feel peace with waiting. We're not okay with it, but our solution is just kind of force it, take those impatient feelings and just kind of beat them down and, and ignore them. And we call that patience. At least that's all too often my strategy. Um, but patience is not ignoring impatient feelings. Um, it's not something that you just kind of have or you don't have, uh, something that we're helpless to control. Patience is something we need to deliberately choose. And the path to patience is humility. We need to address the heart of the issue. Um, yeah, it's really hard to get a handle on patience and to figure out how to have patience when I don't have patience. But we need to just drill down a little bit and figure out what's at the root of that. There's sin in our hearts that produces that impatience. And so dealing with the symptoms is difficult if you've not got to the root of the disease there's a reason we're impatient. Impatience is nothing other than pride. We think we know. I know what needs to happen. I know when it needs to happen. God, I know better. And we think that God or whoever it is we're waiting for uh, is either wrong or behind schedule, probably being lazy. Um, we think we could do better. And God crushes that in this verse. He tells Habakkuk, no, the vision is waiting for an appointed time. And what's he saying? The time is coming. The time is set. It's just not your time. It's my time. Ouch. I like that. And he says it, it hastens toward its end. It's, it's eagerly leaning toward its goal, toward being fulfilled. It's, it's moving that direction. And it will not lie. He's uncovering Habakkuk's pride. You suspect that maybe I have failed? That I promised and won't fulfill it? That I lied to you? I misled you? I told you one thing and I'm doing another? We get impatient at a restaurant when the food is slow and we begin to think, did she put our order in? Like, did she take our order and go on, on her break? Did, the, did they forget? Have they lied to us? But God does not lie. God does not forget. God does not delay. This is about God being on his timeline and us being okay with that. 
We would never admit it, but we get impatient because we subtly and quietly believe that we could do better than God. We think we know, but you don't know. You don't know. We, we think that we have, uh, it would have been better if this suffering would have been taken away yesterday. But God says, no, I have my appointed time. Don't worry. I will act at just the right time. This prophecy, this vision, it will come to pass in my perfect timing. And and so here's how we wait with patience, trusting that God knows better than me. That if he hasn't answered yet, even though I think he should have, um, I can stop and admit, no, it's me that's wrong, not him. Right? It's my feelings that are out of line, not his timeline. And this is the attitude that James pushes us toward. Uh, James 4, 13 to 16. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We make plans as if we know what's going to happen. As if we know what's best, as if we're in control and we boast about it in our arrogance. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this and this and this. It's settled. It's set. It's done. And God says, you don't know. You don't know if you're going to live through tomorrow. And so he's not saying don't make plans. He's not saying don't think long term. What he's saying is hold that in an open hand. You recognize as you make your plans that we, we keep our plans as kind of small p plans. And, and not just with our mouths, but in our hearts we're saying, if the Lord wills. If it's God's plan, um, this is what I'm thinking. And, and we'll see what God does. We'll see what the Lord works through it. What happens ultimately is, is his, and, and I'm okay with that. And if God is going to take my plan and, and spin it 180 degrees, that's okay. We ought to say, if the Lord wills, my cancer will go into remission. If the Lord wills, he'll, he'll provide me with a job. If the Lord wills, my, my children will be healed. And in humility, actually believing that if he doesn't, it's because he knows something I don't. That his plan is better than mine. We wait with this this deep humility that produces patience as we actually trust him. I want to just take a minute, a little out of the ordinary. Um, Can we just pause there for a minute? I know I had to as I'm wrestling through this, preparing to bring this message. Um, Just take some time with the Lord. Do you trust him? What are the things that, are, that you're wrestling with, the things that you've been impatient about? Maybe you need to confess to God. Uh, maybe you need to, to give that up to, to him and his wisdom. So I just want to invite you to take a moment right now, um, just quiet prayer with the Lord, and, and bring those things to him.
Father, we confess that our plans uh, are many, but you direct our steps. Lord, help us. Help us to walk in humility. Help us to trust you um, when your plan is not what we have planned. Forgive us for our pride. Help us to, to trust you, Father. So we wait in patient humility. And then we wait with persistent obedience. Now, patience makes sense with the way we think about um, waiting. Persistence, I think, needs a little bit of corrective thinking for us. Um, This is a command. Um, If it seems slow, the Lord says, wait. Wait for it. Anyone else feel like the Lord's a little slow these days? God, where are you? I'm ready now. Um, That appointed time, any day now. Um, we're not the first ones to feel the weight of this. Uh, Long before Habakkuk wrote, um, David felt the weight of this. Uh, It's all through the psalm. Psalm 6, pretty clear. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, uh, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. How long, O Lord? I'm struggling here. This burden is heavy. God, when are you going to come and save me? It's been the cry of the saints for thousands of years. And now it's the cry of us. Lord, how long? How long until this is all over? How long must I I suffer and weep? And this is the cry to the Lord to which he responds with this gentle command, wait, wait. Waiting in a biblical sense isn't just a passive thing. It's it's not like being on hold with the phone company or the insurance company, um, just sitting there. Um, Biblical waiting is active waiting. It's active waiting. Remember uh, back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Habakkuk telling the Lord, um, I'm going to take my stand in the watchtower, station myself on the tower and look out to see what you will say to me. Habakkuk is not passively waiting. He's, he's actively waiting. Metaphorically, he went up to wait in the watchtower. Why? What's, what's with the watchtower? Well, from the tower, um, you can see long distances. You can see things from the tower that you don't see from the ground. If you're in the tower, you can see a a messenger coming. You can see weather coming so that the town can prepare. You can see an army coming. And if you're under siege by an opposing army that has overwhelmed you and you're growing hopeless as your gates slowly give way, you can see help is on the horizon. You can see the rescue coming. The Lord is affirming Habakkuk. That's the right place to be, Habakkuk. Waiting, not passively, but eagerly, expectantly, standing at your post. Like a soldier on watch, we, we wait. It's an act of obedience. Waiting in faith that the Lord will answer. So biblical waiting is active waiting, 
that comes from a greater perspective. It's a greater perspective. You can, you can see more from the watchtower than you can from the ground. In, in Romans 8, um, listen to Paul's uh, perspective as he waits through suffering. Starting verse 18, it says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now, and not only uh, and, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we're saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So much packed in there. You can feel his pain. You can feel his wrestling, this cry, how long, O Lord? The whole world is is groaning and waiting under this this burden of, of chaos and suffering. But from his tower, and his tower is built on sound doctrine, on knowing the character of the Lord and the promises of the Lord. And and from that perspective, he can say, I can see what's coming. I know where this is going. It's going to a place where there's the glory of God that's not even worthy to be revealed or to to be compared um, to the suffering of this this earth. Help is on the way. And so he, he waits in hope. We gain this greater perspective by knowing more of the Lord's character. By knowing his promises and standing on that as we wait. Do you, like Paul, have that, that confidence of who God is and what he has promised? We, we need to be planting our feet in, in God's word, driving, driving piles down deep into God's immovable foundation so that we can stand on that um, that it's not about my, my feelings or the, the whim of today, but it's about God's truth that I stand on and I know and I gain that perspective. So part of this greater perspective is that we wait obediently expecting God's work in us. Expecting God's work in us. Uh, Tim Keller um, says it this way. He says that we wait well through trials and suffering by a savvy vote for our own personal growth. A savvy vote for our own personal growth. I love the way he puts that. Um, knowing, uh, even hopeful for the fact that, that we're not going to come out the other side of this the same person. That, that persistently, obediently waiting produces a character, a depth of faith in me. It, it makes me into the kind of person that I wish I was, closer to, to the kind of person that God intends for me to be. This waiting is, is producing something in me. Listen to Job. You know the story of Job. He suffered like few ever have. And Job 23.10, one of these just great gems that's lost so often in this massive book, he says, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. First he says, The Lord knows where this is going. 
He knows the way I take, which is another way of saying I don't. I don't know where this is going, but I trust him. God knows he has this patient humility. Um, But then he gets up into his tower and he looks out to the horizon and he says, look, once he's tried me, when he's tested me, I'll come out as pure gold. I'm going to come out different, better. Can you say that? Do you have that kind of hope? Do you believe that, that God is doing something good in you through this? Peter uh, picks up on Job's language. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you being tested? Are you being put through the fire? And let me just say that if, if you're not now, it's coming. It's the reality of this world that we live in. Testing by fire reveals the state of your faith. It reveals your heart. Is your faith genuine or not? For some, for those who, who will not wait obediently, who will not trust in God, but, but who kick and fight and, and refuse to trust Him, they don't have true faith. And for them, this, this fire is destructive. It, it takes what may have looked like gold on the surface, and it shows it was false. It was fool's gold. It produces bitterness and anger and and all kinds of ugliness. That person who did not have genuine faith, but they were just kind of happy to, to call themselves a Christian, just kind of hoping to get something good out of God, um, when tested by fire, they turn away. I did the God thing. It didn't work. It didn't pay off in the end. I tried prayer, nothing happened, God didn't listen, so I refused to wait. I walked away. And the, the result of that, I think many of us have seen that in people who just come out bitter and angry. But for those whose faith is genuine, not, not perfect but sincere, trusting in the Lord himself, not just looking at his gifts but looking to him, They wait with this persistent obedience, standing faithfully in the tower, actively waiting for the Lord, humbly trusting in Him. And that testing by fire will only purify them. Testing by trials purifies faith. And so those things that we had that were kind of mixed and and messy that were bringing our faith down and making it impure, God is working those things out. He's pressing us. Do you love me? Do you trust me? Or are you just in this for benefits? Are you just in this because you think I'll make you wealthy? Are you just in this because you think I'll give you earthly blessings? And so as God removes those, he's graciously tearing our hearts away from the things of this world and reminding us that it's him that's important. And it all mounts to the glory of God. A glory that, that Paul says is so great, it won't even be compared to the struggles of this life. And so we, we enter these trials. Can, can you do that? Can you cast that savvy vote for your own personal growth? That God is working in it. 
working in you through it. So we wait with this, with this patient humility and we wait with a, with a dogged, persistent obedience and then we wait with a peculiar faith. Okay, why peculiar? Um, well, peculiar doesn't just mean weird. Um, it means different. It means specific and, and unique. It's a certain kind of faith. And, and I say that because uh, this world has, uh, has blown up the idea of faith. And they talk a lot about just have faith, just believe. Well, believe in what? Or is belief just kind of a magic spell that makes everything turn out okay? Or there are different religions that have you believe in different things, different, different ways of, of coming to God. But we have a peculiar faith, a specific faith. And we need to define what we have faith in. And we see this, this contrast that shows up uh, in verses 4 and 5. We read it again for us so it's fresh in our minds. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He is, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, I, I think um, what we have here is the vision. I think this is it. At least verse 4, possibly verses 4 and 5. I think this is the message that God wanted Habakkuk to, to write down for everyone to see. Um, and, I, and I get that primarily, just that first word, behold. Look. See it. A vision is coming. Write it down. Here it is. These are the words that God wanted that are so important. Uh, and it's a contrast between the worldly and the righteous. And he uses Babylon as this picture of the, the worldly, as the, of the unrighteous. Um, why is he unrighteous? Well, because his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Um, the worldly are unrighteous because of their pride. The opposite of patient humility. Uh, he's puffed up. He's arrogant. And, and no one who is arrogant can be upright before the Lord. It, it doesn't work. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. Arrogance is incompatible with righteousness. And then verse 5, we see this, what this worldly faith looks like. Wine is a traitor. What on earth is he talking about? Why wine? And why this whole talk about wine and wine is uh, a traitor, wine is, is greedy and, and it gathers up all the nations. Well, I, I don't think this is a strong condemnation against alcohol. Um, wine in their day was generally accepted as a, as a good thing. Everybody drank wine that was part of their culture. And in fact, Psalm 104.15 talks about the, the blessings that the Lord gives, and, and one of them is wine to gladden the heart. Jesus' first miracle was making the best wine at a wedding feast. And Jesus said, I'm not going to have this fruit of the vine, this wine again, until I have it with you, my disciples, in paradise. So why is wine here? Well, what does wine represent? Wine was enjoyed, as I said, at celebrations, at, at parties. It was the symbol of, of wealth and prosperity and peace. Wine was kind of emblematic of the good life. This is it. This is, this is worldly success and, and blessing. And it's a traitor. 
It's a traitor. Today, maybe we would have said money is a traitor or success is a traitor. The American dream is a traitor. They put their faith in earthly pleasures and earthly success. This is their life. This is their hope. This is their faith. It's all wrapped up in enjoying the here and now, the good life, the physical pleasures that we have now, and and it's a traitor. It promises joy and, and hope and all these good things, and it lies. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't pay off. If you put your faith in the good things of this world, defining your life by, by finding your satisfaction in worldly things, you'll be devoured by it. And, and, and this pursuit of worldly things devours the nations. It, it doesn't discriminate And it's never filled. It never has enough. It just continues to eat people up. It's a bottomless pit. And it's a a traitor because those things are fragile and they're temporary. Because when evil days come and and suffering comes, if if my joy was in my comfort and my comfort is taken away, my my joy is gone. There's, There's nothing left to stand on. But the opposite of this is the righteous will live by faith. That right there is is the heart and soul of the book of Habakkuk. You could boil the whole book of Habakkuk down to that one phrase, the righteous will live by faith. In fact, I dare say that's the theme of the Bible. The righteous will live by his faith. Not by trusting in wine, not in the, the tangible worldly pleasures and success and satisfaction, but by trusting in God. Trusting in God even when those worldly comforts, those good blessings of God are are taken away. That's faith. The righteous will live by that faith. Okay, what does that mean? This is such an important sentence. How do we unpack this? Well, there's there's three pieces there. Um, There's the righteous, the fact that they live, and the fact that they live because of their faith. So the word righteous there. Uh, is just, it's, it's a legal term. It's the opposite of guilty. Uh, someone who's morally right, who is, who is justified. They're legally, morally good. And they'll live. And, and I think by the context here, we can see it's, this is more than just kind of a breath and heartbeat. Um, this is joy. This is fullness of, of life. And they will live because of their faith. And, and that's what I think we really need to, to drill down on in understanding um, This is the message of Scripture. This verse gets quoted three times through the New Testament uh, in in significant ways. And and if you're wanting to understand what the Bible means, the the best place to go is when the Bible explains itself. And so let's just kind of walk through these three places and and, and unpack this a little bit. Um, How does the New Testament explain this sentence? Well, first, um, we're saved by faith. We're saved by faith. We see that in the book of Romans. Um, Romans 1, 16 to 17. And, and, and this would be like the, um, the thesis statement of the book of Romans that, that the rest of the book unpacks. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God, the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So Paul grabs on to Habakkuk 2.4 here, and he understands it as the foundation for the gospel. The righteous will live by faith means that we're saved by faith. Well, 
Let's get real basic. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Romans 1 goes on to unpack how how God has revealed himself through creation in such a way that every human being is held accountable before God. There's no denying his existence. Um, Chapter 2 then talks about how even if you don't know the law of God, even if you've never picked up a Bible, God has put within you a conscience and you haven't even lived up to your own standards. You haven't even lived up to what you know to be right. And so we all stand guilty before God. And and chapter 3 just drops the hammer. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God. And the wages of sin, if we jump ahead to chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. That's what we rightly deserve. That's the payment that we get for our sin. Hell, the wrath of God. But the righteous will live by faith. That's the gospel. That Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. And by trusting him, we're we're saved from death. We have life. And so Romans 1 explains that we're saved by faith. And and then Galatians 3 continues to build on that. He he takes Habakkuk 2.4 again, and, and he explains it to mean that we're not saved by the things that we do. We're not saved by the things that we do. Let me read uh, Galatians 3, 10 and 11. Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so if you want to stand before God on your own two feet, and you want to be called righteous based on your life and the things that you've done, based on how you have lived, and you think that's what that means, the righteous, that's me who has lived a good life and done everything right, I'll live by my faith. Um, No, Paul brings that crashing down. If you want to stand before God on your own righteousness, it's not enough for you to be the best version of yourself. It's not enough for your good works to outweigh your bad. So many people talk like this. Oh, as long as I get that like 60-40 split or is, I don't know, is 51-49 enough? It's not about just changing. Now I'll be a better person. From here out, I'm going to live different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a righteous person. No. No, if you want to gain life by your own righteousness before God, you have to keep the law perfectly, full stop. Every single law completely. And as Jesus unpacks that, he shows us that it's, it's not just the actions of the law, it's the heart and what's in my heart. And so Jesus says, the command is do not murder, but if you've even hated someone in your heart, you've broken the command. You've lived contrary to it. The, the command is do not commit adultery, but if you've even lusted in your heart against someone who's not your wife, you've broken the command. And then we begin to stack up, do not lie, do not steal, honor your father and mother. Do not covet all of them perfectly from the heart. If you're still trying to do the math and see how you line up, let me help you. Quit. You failed. We don't. We can't. We're so far from this. And that's the good news of the gospel. 
The righteous will live not by their perfect obedience. They're they're righteous not because they've earned it, but because of their faith. Just like it was said of Abraham, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God says, trust me. Put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus and I will make you righteous even though you're not. I will give you righteousness as a gift. By faith, we are made righteous. Righteousness is given as this marvelous, undeserved gift by faith. And so we have life, not by earning it, but this gift from God. And that's the ultimate perspective that we need. That's the the tower that we need to stand on. No matter what else happens in this broken, hurting world, even if every comfort and success and happiness in this world is completely taken away from me, by faith in Christ, I have life. Life abundant, life that is full without suffering, without pain, and without end. Still ahead. It's on the horizon. And so the righteous will live by faith, as in that's how they will gain life, is by their faith, but also that they will continue day by day pressing on by faith. And and we endure by faith. And that's what Hebrews 10 is talking about, as it quotes from Habakkuk 2, we endure by faith. The church was under fire. They were being persecuted and and suffering. And and so the writer of Hebrews pulls out Habakkuk 2.4. And he says this in in Hebrews 10.36. For you have need of endurance. Oh, church, anyone have need of endurance today? You have need of endurance so that when you have done all the will of God, you may receive what is promised for, and then he quotes Habakkuk, yet a little while. And the coming one will come and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's talking about that that persistent obedience, that faith in Christ that that helps us pursue and, and, and preserve our souls as we walk in obedience. Now, there's some cool language stuff going on here, so um, we're just going to take a nerd break for a minute. You guys, if you're waiting for your nap, now's your chance. Um, I'll wake you up. Um, Habakkuk says the vision is coming, and, and, and it will not delay. Wait for it. Um, but what we don't see, because we're reading in English and not in Hebrew, a bunch of slackers that we are, and, uh, is that vision is feminine, and when he says it will surely come, it will not delay, wait for it. Um, The word the Lord uses is actually a masculine pronoun, which is weird. And I I wonder, like, did Habakkuk know what was going on? Did he catch this? Did he, like, just look at that and go, like, what is that about? Um, Three, four hundred years later, um, still 300 years before Jesus, the, the Old Testament was being translated into Greek, and, uh, and, and a bunch of Jews got together, and they translated this verse, he will surely come, he will not delay, wait for him. And I think, oh, that's cool. That's too good to be true, but I was still kind of wrestling with it. I wasn't convinced until I came to Hebrews 10, and there it is. Did you catch it? 
The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is translating Habakkuk four, or 2, 4, and, and he says, the coming one will come and will not delay. He's not talking about a vision. He's talking about a person, a man, a rescuer. His name is Jesus. Right from the beginning, it's all driving forward. The promised Messiah is coming. That's what is so important. Tell everyone he's coming at just the right time. God doesn't lie. If it seems slow, wait for him. He will surely come. He will not delay. So the righteous live by faith day by day, enduring in that hope that the Messiah is coming. Our rescue, our help is on the way. If you're a, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, um, my kids are just reading through Lord of the Rings now. It's bringing back all these, these memories. But this is it. This is, this is us in the Battle of Helm's Deep, absolutely overwhelmed, making that last ditch effort, knowing we're going to be destroyed, and then Gandalf showing up, the bright white coming over the eastern horizon. That's it. He's here. He's he's coming. And of course, our rescuer has come and died on the cross for our behalf, opening the way of salvation, and he will come again. He's going to return to finish and complete that victory, to bring all of his faithful, all of those who have been tested and tried and put through the fire and made pure and proved to be genuine into his kingdom, his new heavens, his new earth, where there is life and life abundant and fullness of joy and satisfaction and peace in him for eternity. That's our hope. That's how we endure day by day by faith, looking to Christ, trusting in who he is, waiting for his return. Church, if it seems slow, wait for it. He will surely come. He will not delay. He's coming in his perfect timing. He's testing you and purifying you and bringing about his good work in you. So wait with with patient humility, wait with persistent obedience, and wait with that peculiar faith clinging to Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, you know our hearts. You know our, uh, our small perspective and how easily we are discouraged and distraught and we see 10 feet ahead and it just looks rough. Lord, help us to see. Help us to see that you are God and we're not. That you know all things and we don't. To trust you. Help us to obey. Help us to, to stand eagerly waiting, steadfast in obedience. And Lord, give us that glorious perspective to know that you're at work, to know that you're at work in us, purifying us and changing and transforming us. And to know that our help will come. Our rescuer will return and that there is glory on the horizon. And that these Temporary sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that awaits. God, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for that redemption. Give us strength. Give us peace in Christ. The glory of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name.